Welcome to this week's message from Pastor Jeff Spooniebarger of Story Point Church, located in the heart of Gulf Breeze, Florida. And now, here's Pastor Jeff Spooniebarger with this week's message from Story Point Church. So the holiness of God, Kevin talked about it. A little earlier, we sang about it through our songs. Garrett stood up and shared more about the holiness of God. And so that's where we're actually camping out. If you remember, about four weeks ago, we started this foundational series, this foundational direction, focusing on the holiness of God. We looked at Leviticus 19.2, where it says, Be holy. As I, the Lord your God, am holy. Be holy as I, Yehovah, your Elohim, am holy. Be holy as I, your Elohim, the strong one, the strong God, the all-encompassing God, as holy. And so we look at this command of God to imitate Him, to be like Him, to do what He does, to go where He goes as an order, as a command. And we looked at that also from the perspective of, wait a minute, if God's calling me, telling me, giving me an authority, telling me to do this, as in it is a rule, it is a regulation, it is a command, He would not give me a command that I cannot keep. And so for four weeks we've looked at the holiness of God. We looked at the holiness of the Holy Spirit. We looked at the holiness of Jesus. And for the next two weeks... We're going to kind of change our perspective, our lens that we're looking at the holiness of God through. And we're looking at the holiness of God through the lens of the seraphim angels. And we're going to do that through the eyes and the vision of Isaiah in chapter 6 this week. And next week we're going to look at it through the, through the eyes and the lens of John the Apostle in the book of Revelation chapter 4. So we're going to camp a couple of weeks because there's significance here. We've looked at the holiness of God through Scripture, the holiness of Jesus through Scripture, the holiness of the Holy Spirit through Scripture. And before we kind of jump into the lens of humanity, our lenses, the way that we look at God through our culture, through our world, through the way that we're wired, we need to look at it through the angel lens. And we're going to look at it to begin with through the eyes of Isaiah. Now Isaiah begins in chapter 6 verse 1. He says, in the, in the year that King Uzziah died, as we study history, we look and we can know the exact year that he died was 740 B.C. In 740 B.C., King Uzziah died. And in that very same year, Isaiah had a vision. I guess it was a vision. I'm not sure exactly what it was. Was it in the body or was it out of the body? Paul talks about that in the New Testament. He says, I don't know if the vision was in the body or out of the body, but regardless, it happened. And so we see this person, Isaiah, this man, Isaiah, listed by some as the greatest or definitely one of the greatest, most influential prophets that had ever lived. So much of Scripture pointing to Jesus in the Old Testament is found in the book of Isaiah. Brilliant, gifted, firm in his foundation of God. 
And you have this guy, Isaiah. And we look here in Scripture, in the year that King Uzziah died, he saw the throne room of God. We're fixing to dig into that. Now, I don't know, as I said, was that something that God literally took his body and he put him in the throne room of God? Maybe. Or was it something where he was on earth in our natural? And God, in his mind, took his mind through his imagination, through a vision, to the throne room of God. I don't know. That's something that we can each wrestle with ourselves. But here's what I want you to do this morning as we think about this and process this. I want you to put on your thinking cap. I want you to open the eyes of your imagination. I need you to do this. We're going to imagine what this was what this looked like through the eyes of Isaiah. Now, why do we even want to do this? This happened 2,700 years ago. Who cares, right? Guys, the truth of Scripture is that God gave Isaiah this vision in the body of out of the body, I do not know, 2,700 years ago, and it is applicable to our lives today. It is. This is truth centuries old that is true and can be and should be and must be applied to our lives every single day. Why? Because it's foundational. Why? Because it deals with the holiness of God, which in Leviticus 19.2 we're commanded to be holy because He is holy. So let's put on our imagination as we walk through just these first eight verses. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, In the year of King Uzziah's death, which was when? When? 740. 740. Yes, few of us listened. Yeah, did you write it down? You wrote it down, didn't you? 740 B.C. So in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw Adonai sitting on a throne. Now in many books we'll say that, in many translations that will say God. I saw God, or I saw the Lord sitting on the throne. Adonai. Adonai, teenagers, means master of all. So a literal translation is that uh, Isaiah is saying, I saw the master of all sitting on the throne. Now I want you in your imagination for just a moment to whatever your imagination takes you to see this view. See what it is that Isaiah is seeing. Isaiah says, I saw with my eyes... I saw Adonai, the master of all, the king of kings, the lord of lords. I saw him sitting on the throne. What does that throne look like in your imagination? Is it gigantic? Is it the same size as ours? Is it a big chair or is it made out of marble? Is it made out of wood? What does it look like? I saw Adonai sitting on a throne. How, majesty, how, how much majesty was it? How majestic was it? How big was it? How many colors was it? I can't really wrap my mind around it, but Isaiah saw this. I saw Adonai sitting on a throne high and lifted up. So there's part of the description. How high was it? How high and lifted up? Was it like a platform like this and, and Isaiah was sitting right there? Or maybe it was a little bit higher. Maybe it, was, maybe it was four feet, five feet, six feet. Maybe it was ten feet in the air. I don't know. What is it in your imagination? Because here's what we need to remember. God gave us our imagination. God gave us our minds. 
And we are imagining what it was to see through the eyes of Isaiah in this moment. To see what he saw. Have you ever asked God to allow you to see what somebody saw when you was reading the Bible? God, I, I want to see that. Do you, do you want to see this? Do you really want to see this? Father in heaven, give us eyes to see in this moment what Isaiah saw. Is that too bold of a prayer to pray? Should we pray that? I mean, why on earth would God give us an example of, of this other than to use our imaginations to point us toward Him and sense the enormity of what's happening here? Isaiah, 2,700 years ago, went to the throne root of God. In the body, out of the body, we don't know. But he saw this. He saw Adonai, the master of all, the Lord of lords and kings of kings, sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. Can you imagine what was going through his mind at that very moment? Can you imagine standing there trying to soak in what he was seeing? Guys, we read Scripture and we gloss over it. And I can read eight verses. I could have read these first eight verses ten times by now and closed the book and gone away. And that's how we live our life so often. God wants so much more for us, but we, we can find it to a black and white book that we just open up and read occasionally. And he says, I want you to grasp the enormity of what's walking, talking, what's being discussed. I want you to grasp the enormity of what Isaiah saw in that moment. Because it's life-changing. It changed his life. And you will see that by the time we get to verse 8. In eight short verses, you have this incredible vision, this incredible encounter that literally changed the life of this man. Significantly. I saw Adonai sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. The train of his robe filled the temple. Now, I know this is kind of a younger generation in here for the most part, but do you remember seeing, for those of us a little bit older, when Princess Diana got married to Prince Charles over in England all those years ago, and the train of her robe, the train on her wedding dress was so incredibly long. So when we think about trains in our culture today, the first thing that typically comes to mind is a wedding dress, right? We don't think about kings and queens anymore because that's not the world that we live in. That's what we're living in here through Isaiah. But think about that to so the wedding dress. So you got a wedding dress, and the dress is, the train of the dress is six feet long, or maybe it's eight feet, or then maybe it's really adventurous. It's 10, tweet, 10 feet or 12 feet long. Have you seen that magnificent thing? And then the one Princess Diana, I have no idea, 20, 30 feet long, covered with jewels, all sorts of different colors, absolutely beautiful. Now use your imagination. See what Isaiah saw. I see Adonai sitting on the throne high and lifted up. Now let's assume for just a moment that this room represents the throne room. I think it's really small in comparison. That's my guess. But let's assume for the sake of understanding that it's the size of this room. And you walked in and you saw Adonai, master of all, sitting on the throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe did what? Filled the room. Filled it. It wasn't just right down the center and kind of wrapped around the side and all elegantly. It filled the entire room. Now, what did it look like? He doesn't tell us. Was it covered with jewelry? 
all sorts of different colors. Was it gold and, and silver and white linen? Was, it, was there purple inside because of the royalty of who God is? Well, there's all these different jewels that we don't even know exist here on earth because they're in heaven. What did it look like? What, what, was he swimming in it? Was it so thick and so around that he actually walked through the very train in order to get to where he could see the throne of God? The train of his robe filled the room. Why would he even put that in there if it was not significant? The train, the train shows the authority, the regality, the enormity of who God is. It was so thick, he had to say it filled up the entire room. Such majesty, such honor, such regality in God, the Father, the Master of all, sitting on the throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the entire temple. Now here we get to good stuff. If that wasn't good enough, seraphim were standing above him. Now, let me tell you something about the seraphim. The seraphim are listed twice in the entire Bible. Twice in the entire Bible. Here in Isaiah and then in John in Revelation, which we'll look at next week. Two times, yet so, so, so significant. Let's read on and I'll tell you why it's significant. Each had six wings. How many wings? Now, how many times have you seen angels in pictures in the little cherubs with six wings? Not very often. Let me explain that. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. Now, if you would do a Google search, when you go home, don't do it now because you will... Not listen. It, when you go home, do a Google search under images for seraphim, and you will find thousands of years of pictures and artwork and designs and sculptures of seraphim. It'll blow your mind, the number of them, throughout history. Since this was written around 2,700 years ago, there has been this mental capacity of trying to understand what that actually looked like. It's crazy. You'll see tall, skinny angels with, with that description of two wings over their face, two over their feet, and two flapping up. You'll see giant seraphim heads, giant baby faces with little bitty wings all around, the six wings all around, over and over and over and over. Church decorations, church walls, cathedrals all across the world, throughout the history of the world, ever since this has been written, trying to grasp what that actually looked like, what that vision looked like. Angels. I'm going to give you about a two-minute synopsis on angels. This is not angelology today. So you've got the seraphim. Twice they're listed in Scripture. I told you that. Here in Isaiah, and they're listed again in Revelation chapter 4. Six wings. Kind of blows the mind. We don't really understand was, were they attached to his back? All six of them? Or was it on his side? Or was it on his legs because it was covered his leg and one of his ear? I mean, who knows what that looked like? Now you've got another type of angel, cherubim. So the seraphim, S-E-R-A-P-H-I-M, cherubim, C-H. The cherubim, all throughout Scripture when they're listed, are listed with two wings. That's where we see a traditional angel. But only here in the throne room of God do we see the, cherubim, the seraphim listed. And they're serving, and they're honoring, and they're, paying, they're giving praise and glory to God the Father. So you got archangels and ministering angels. The word angel in the original language means 
minister. So they're coming to, to minister and help. But these particular ones are at the throne of God. And what are they doing there? In verse 3 he says, One called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is Adonai Zavuot. The whole earth is full of his glory. Adonai Zavuot, Adonai or Yehovah actually is in the original language. So Yehovah, the name of God, Zavuot. We translate that as Lord. We sometimes say heavenly host. Another translation or another original meaning that I love to use is the idea of the God of angel armies. That's who he is. And that's the way that Isaiah is describing him here. Holy, holy, holy is Jehovah Zavuot, the God of angel armies. Think about what that is significant. Now you look at Leviticus 19.2 when Moses is writing this. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty is Jehovah Zavuot. That's what Isaiah says. In Leviticus 19.2, Be holy because I, Jehovah, your Elohim. The strong one. So, be holy because I, the Lord your God, the strong one am holy. And now we see the seraphim around the throne in this moment. Because this is happening nonstop. Right now, as we were singing songs about holy, holy, holy. As we're talking about holy, holy, holy. As Gary got up and shared about holy, holy, holy. In the throne room right now, the seraphim are going around. And they're singing to each other to the honor and glory of our God and Father in heaven. Holy, holy, holy is Adonai Zavuot. Jehovah Zavuot, the God of angel armies. And the whole earth is full of His glory. Absolutely incredible. Holy, holy, holy is Adonai Zavuot. The whole of the earth is full of his glory. I was wrestling with this particular verse yesterday. I was thinking about it all day. I'm thinking about it this morning. And I, I tried to kind of describe this in the first service. And I'm, I'm really having, I'm still trying to wrap my mind around this. Because he says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then they say, the whole, earth is full, the whole earth is full of His glory. And so when we think about that and we process that, our minds automatically go to this logical-based thing, which means this happens, that this happens, this, this happens. So we read that and say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We establish that. And then we say, the whole earth is full of His glory. And we say, the whole earth is full of His glory because what did He do? He spoke creation into existence. Then He formed us inside of our mother's womb. And, then he, and, and you know, he put the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and the blue skies. And because He did all this... He, he wired in His glory so that His glory is being known throughout all creation. But that's not what it says. It says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy, holy, holy is Adonai Zavuot, Yehovah Zavuot, the God of angel armies. Holy, holy, holy. And because of His holiness, there was an outpouring of glory. Glory, byproduct is not the right word, but there's... there's the glory of God is shown through His holiness. The earth is not, was not created and given the glory of God. Because of His holiness, the earth sees the glory of God. Does that make sense? I can't, even, I can't quite connect the dots in my mind. It's just so mind-blowing. The holiness of God is, is kind of like an aura. It's kind of like this ur, um, um, bubble. It's almost like as, as God spoke and His voice goes out, so God is and His holiness goes out. 
And because we are part under the, under the creation of God, the very fact that He is holy is the reason that the, glory, the earth itself cries out to the glory of God. That the whole earth is full of His glory. Because of His holiness. See, the holiness is the key. The holiness is the foundation. And so you've got these seraphim that are crying out nonstop. Holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who the whole of the earth is full of His glory. What do we take and do with that? Can you imagine what was going on in Isaiah's ears as he heard that? He walks in. He sees the throne room. He sees God the Father high and lifted up. He sees a seraphim above him. And he hears them with his voice, I mean with his ears. He's hearing them cry out, Holy, holy, holy is Yehovah Zavuat, the God of angel armies. The whole earth is full of his glory. And in that moment, the magnitude of that moment, the purpose of that moment, the weight of of that moment in my imagination as I read that crushed Isaiah. Because look what happens next. Then the post of the door trembled at the voice of those who called, and the house or temple was filled with smoke. Let's read that again. I want you to process it. In your imagination, you're seeing this. You're seeing what's happening. You're hearing the seraphim Cry out, holy, holy, holy. And in that moment, in your body, you're feeling the post of the door tremble. The foundation is starting to tremble. At the voice of those who called, and the house or temple was filled with smoke. Here's what I want us to grasp from this. It was not the voice of the seraphim which caused the trembling foundation to take place. It was not because of their voice. But it says, they, they cried out their voice, and because of their voice, the, the, the foundation trembled, and smoke was filling the temple. Smoke was filling the house. No, it wasn't because of their voice. They could not scream loud enough to cause the foundation of heaven to be shaken. It was the truth. The truth of the holiness of God shook the very foundation. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine in this moment, if we cried out with all of our voices, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, and He chose to shake the very foundations because of the truth that we were reverberating out of our vocal cords. I can't... It blows my mind. They couldn't scream loud enough. We can't scream loud enough. The number of us that are in here to shake the foundation of this place, much less to fill the place with smoke. And it wasn't because there's something unique about the seraphim so that their voices cause foundations to shake. Their voices cause smoke to fill the temple. No, it was truth. Truth shook the very foundation. Truth caused that earthquake on the day Jesus died. Truth is what ripped the veil. Truth is what caused darkness. Truth shook Isaiah to the very core. Then I said, 
Oy to me, woe to me, for I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips. I am dwelling among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, Adonai Zavuot, Yehovah Zavuot, the God of angel armies. I want you to grasp what this says for just a minute, okay? Let's replay. He's in the throne room. He sees God, Adonai, master of all, high and lifted up, sitting on his throne, the train fills the, the temple. It fills the room. He's in awe. I, mean, I can't even imagine the, the, the radiance that he saw, the, the blinding light of God, the holiness of God. What does it look like to see holiness? I can't even fathom that. But that's what's happening in that moment. And then he's hearing, holy, holy, holy. He's hearing truth over and over and over and over. And it's, he's seeing truth and he's hearing truth. And then he feels it because it starts to shake. The foundation starts to shake. The trembling around the door frames. The foundation starts to shake. Smoke is filling the temple. And the weight, the weight of his brokenness and his sin overwhelms him because he's in the presence of truth. He's in the presence of the King of kings and Lord of lords. And in that moment, I can, I can just imagine, he, he, he falls completely to his face and he cries out, Woe is me! Oh, I just had an aha moment. I just realized the weight of my sin, the weight of my depravity, the weight of my sinful nature, how far I am from holiness, how far I am from purity. In that moment, he realized. And he couldn't bear it. And he's on his knees. I imagine he's on his knees. He doesn't say his was. But he's on his knees and he's crying out, Woe is me. Well, I am in big trouble now. I thought this was going to be awesome. I'm standing in the throne room of God and, and the weight of who I am is crushing me. The weight of my sin is crushing me. The weight of my degradation, my impure lifestyle is crushing me. And he cries out and says, I am a man of unclean lips. I am so unworthy. I live in a people of unclean lips. I'm so unworthy. We're so unworthy. I have just witnessed. I have just seen with my eyes. The king. I just saw the king. The God of angel armies. I just saw him. And the weight crushes him. Can you imagine what that was like? Imagine being in that throne room in that moment. Seeing these seraphim. You think about the seraphim for a moment. We've known about seraphim for 2,700 years. The Bible's a little bit older than that. We didn't know about seraphim in the time of Genesis. We didn't know about seraphim in the Exodus with Moses. We didn't know about seraphim. Moses never saw a seraphim. If he did, he never wrote about it. Moses was on the mountaintop when God passed by. He didn't write about seraphim. Moses was in the Holy of Holies. He was in the, the tent of meeting when God and he communicated face to face, we're told in Scripture. And he comes out glowing. He never wrote about the seraphim and the throne room. The judges never wrote about the throne room. They never saw it. King David never saw it. King Solomon never saw it. We're talking about hundreds and hundreds of years later after the kingdom of Israel had already been divided into two. 
that Isaiah shows up and Uzziah's around and Uzziah's passed away and he has this vision of seraphim and the throne room and the glory and the manifested presence of God. And it crushes him to the very core of who he is. How is this applicable today? That's what our sin should do to us. Our sin nature should crush us because as Christ followers, if you've said yes to Jesus at any point in your life, you've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit of God that dwells within you. And the Holy Spirit of God seeks to unify himself with us. And the very nature of us sinning should send us to our knees crushed by the weight. And it happened to Isaiah that way. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a glowing coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth. All right, use our imagination. I don't think he just had a vision and didn't feel anything. I mean, it's, it's kind of like, what's the point? Oh, he had a hot coal and he touched my mouth, and I was like, yay, cool. I don't know if it was in the body or out of the body. We can find out one day when we go see him. We hang out with him and Jesus and God the Father. But I have no doubt whatsoever. He put in there that it was a burning hot coal because he wanted us to know. He wanted the readers to understand it was a burning hot coal. And when it touched his lips, it not only hurt, it seared his lips. It had to be Painful. He would not have written that. He would have said, I had a cool piece of coal, came and touched my lips. Yay, it was over. No, burning hot. The seraphim themselves had to go with tongs and pick this hot coal out of the altar in the throne room of God. And he comes and he touches his lip. Why did he do that? Because purification is painful. You ever been purified? I have. It's a painful process. It wasn't a searing coal on my lips that burned my lips. It wasn't that type of painful. But guys, when we cry out and ask God for clean hands, pure heart, when we ask God for more of Him, when we ask to be purified and made right in His eyes, to be made holy in His eyes, when we ask for that in our lives, God answers that prayer and gives us the opportunity to confess our sins and walk away from our sins and move away and cast them at the foot of the cross. Because Jesus has already paid the cross, paid the price on the cross with His blood. But guys, the purification process is not easy. It's hard. It's difficult. We'll talk more about that next week. Purification is not easy. For Isaiah, it was extremely painful. For us, it can be extremely painful and time-consuming. But it's beautiful. It's beautiful because of what happens on the other side. You see, the longer we live, and I tell this to teenagers all the time, I say, guys, if you're 12, 14, 16, 18 years old, and you're starting to figure this out, praise God you don't have another 20, 30 years to start to figure this out and have all the weight and baggage of past mistakes, past sins to deal with in your life, to get rid of, to confess. How many adults in this room want their kids to wait until they figured it out for their children? Absolutely not. I don't want my children to live another 20, 30 years 
making the same mistakes I made. I can tell them all day long, and it doesn't change a thing. I can live it in front of them. It starts to make a difference, doesn't it? I was raised the same way as you. Do as I say, not as I do. That is wrong. That is wrong. <laughs> Isaiah cries out, Touch my mouth, and with it said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity, your guilt, your, your condemnation has been taken away, and your sins paid for, your sins atoned for. Now we have to understand that this was still written almost 500 years before Jesus' death on the cross. There had to be payment. There was not the blood of Jesus to pay for the sins of Isaiah in that moment. So in that moment, under the gravity of the weight of the holiness of God, Isaiah cries out, I am a sinful, broken, messed up person. Woe is me. There had to be payment for his sin. There had to be an atonement. And so in that, in that dream, in that vision, in the body, out of the body, I do not know. But in that moment, the searing, hot pain of that coal touched his lips. And the seraphim answered, your iniquity, your condemnation, your past mistakes, everything that you've struggled with has now been taken away. And your sins paid for. Your sins have been atoned. How beautiful is that? And that's where we are today with the cross. I think Kevin, uh, during one of the songs, was talking about past sins, past condemnation, past mistakes, and taking them and laying them at the foot of the cross. That's what we do today as Christ followers. If you've ever said yes to Jesus, then confess the sins that you're dealing with now at the foot of the cross. And the blood of cross that was shed 2,000 years ago covers them and forgives them. And it's as far as the east is from the west. It's gone. If you have never said yes to Jesus, then give your heart and your life and your soul to Jesus and say yes to Him. And in that moment... The blood of the cross covers and wipes away your sins. And in that moment, you're given the gift of the Holy Spirit of God. Let me tell you a quick story from Guatemala. I'm running out of time, but I really want to share this. On the last day, we were there uh, one afternoon. Our team had to be divided into two because of uh, the dynamics of what we were doing that day. And so we were doing a small medical clinic where I was. Miss Cindy was our medical provider. And then Miss Shannon Tillman up in the, in the kids' ministry was, she and I were doing pastoral prayer time. Uh, normally we try to do it all in one because of the dynamics we had to kind of separate on that particular day. So Cindy diagnosed a young lady named Anna, 17 years old, having problems sleeping at night. So she diagnosed her, gave, him, gave her stuff that she needed to, and said, hey, Anna's having problems sleeping at night. Kind of feel like that. maybe there's some stress, some issues going on. Spend some time praying with her. So we started a conversation with her. Beautiful, beautiful young lady. The oldest of four. Going to school full time. Lots of homework at night. She says she's so tired at night. But she's so tired, she can't sleep. You know that feeling. We've all, most of us have experienced that. I'm so tired, I just can't sleep. And the weight of responsibility at home, because she's trying to take care of, of, of the dynamics of the three younger children, and just on and on and on. Now, Miss Shannon and I, one of, one of the things we love to do is pray with people. We really, really do. Especially one-on-one, -on -one, having longer conversations. 
And, and so we probably spent 10 minutes or so talking with her and just encouraging her. But we, we just kind of felt like a block, just like something wasn't, I don't know. We just couldn't really pick up on a lot of things. So we spent a few minutes praying for her. And we were praying these very verses. We were praying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty over this young girl. And after we finished praying, it's like the floodgates of, open, of heaven open, and both of us just seemed to have these words to be able to encourage her and point her to Jesus. And then through that conversation, she said, well, I want to learn English, but I, I'm, I'm not smart enough to learn English. And, and you know, we, we rebuked her kindly in the name of Jesus right there. We just felt something in our spirit. said, she is. She's supposed to. She's supposed to lead and guide and direct. These are what, what God's giftings her. So we spent a few more minutes encouraging her and pointing her and, and reminding her of the truth of Scripture, which is true for every single one of us. That God formed us inside of her mother womb. Anna, God formed you inside of your mother's womb. He has a purpose and a plan for your life to prosper you and not to harm you, to give you a hope, to give you future. Encouraged her. And Shannon said, I feel like I'm supposed to pray for her again. I was like, let's do it. She agreed. So I'm on one side, and Shannon's right here, and our translator's on the other side, and Shannon's sitting there, and she just kind of holds her hand. And so Shannon holds out her hand, and Anna puts her hands right there, and we just pray again. Short prayer, one minute, maybe two minutes at the most. Shannon says amen, and we kind of look up. Anna's eyes are closed. And they're still closed. And nobody's praying. There's not a sound, and her eyes are closed. And the three of us, translator and myself and Shannon, just kind of look at each other and, okay, just keep praying. So softly to ourselves, very low, we're just, we're just praying more, Jesus. Give her more. Whatever you're doing, give her more. More Holy Spirit. Whatever you're doing, give her more. Give her more. Give her more. She never moved. Hands still in Shannon's hands. Three minutes. Five minutes. Eight minutes. And then all of a sudden, she opens her eyes. I got to ask, right? I say, Anna, what just happened? Her words, exactly. God just came into my heart. We did not use those words at all. She already claimed Christ. We didn't try to teach her who Jesus was and to say yes to Jesus. None of that came from us. God moved in her heart because her heart was willing. And through her own language and her own mind, she's crying out and asking God for more. She's listening to the truth of Scripture that we were talking to her and proclaiming over her. And she said yes. And through that process, God did something in her heart that will never be taken away. Ever. Ever, ever. I saw her eyes light up with life. I saw it. God did something in that moment. Now, was it an Isaiah type of moment where she went to the throne room? I don't know. Did the weight of her sin just crush her and then she give it to the cross? I don't know. But God moved on her heart. I saw a total change in her body language, in her countenance. It was beautiful. I got chill bumps from the top of my head to the bottom of my toes. I was like, my jaw dropped. I said, I don't even know what to say here. Yay! And Shannon's eyes were like this big around. She's like, oh my goodness, what just happened here? It was awesome. 
And that's what happened to Isaiah. When that searing hot coal touched his lips, and then the words were spoken, you have been forgiven all of that weight, all of that unbearable weight that crushed him, where his eyes could not even look up to the holiness of who God was because of the weight of his sin was gone, and suddenly he was light as a feather. And he was able to stand up and look eyeball to eyeball again to the King of kings and Lord of lords. Now I want you to imagine for a moment that we're in the throne room, all of us together, and Adonai is sitting right there high and lifted up. There's no sin and condemnation because we're all adopted. If you're adopted, you're a son or a daughter of the King of kings and Lord of lords. If you're male, you're a prince. If you're female, you're princesses. That's who you are. That's your identity now. And so we're gathered around in the throne room of God together. And God is such a good, good father. Look at this next verse. This is, this is so, so beautiful. Have you ever felt like a child in the throne room of God? Have you ever felt that experience? I have. I have. To be in the throne room of God, to, to see him high and lifted up, and him look at me as that little six-year-old boy. As Isaiah was feeling in that moment. He's a little six-year-old boy. He's so excited. He's in the throne room of Daddy King. That's my daddy. He's the king. That's my daddy. He's the king. For all of us as Christ followers, that's our daddy. He's the king. And he's a good king. He's a good daddy. Because what's he do? He, he uses a good form of manipulation. <laughs> Just like we do as parents, right? You know what your kid wants, you know what you want your child to do, so you ask it in a way so that they think it's their own idea, right? That's what God just did. Can you imagine? Okay, God's on the throne. Isaiah's just been forgiven of his sin. He's, he's, he's so excited. He's, oh, oh, yes, yes, I can feel it. And God says, hmm, whom then shall I send? Who will go for me? Isaiah's like, oh, send me, send me, send me. I want to go, I want to go, I want to go, I want to go. That's what's going on here. It's not, whom then shall go for us? And Isaiah's like, oh, I shall go. Here I am, send me. You know, this King Arthur type of thing. No, you got a little six-year-old boy here. Spiritually. In that spiritual realm, little six-year-old boy. You're either a six-year-old boy or you're a six-year-old girl. I want, that, I want that to be your imagination in this moment. And in that moment, the king, as wise as he is, just kind of that really cool, awesome beard he's got, he just kind of does like this, has that little crooked smile and says, um, who can I send? Who's going to go for me? I, I, me, me, me. See, that's the truth, this for today. The reason that he had this vision 2,700 years ago was as much for us today as it was for everybody else in the past. Because he is, God's asking that same single question every single moment to us. Who will go for me? Who, will, who can I send? And he's waiting for us to be that little six-year-old boy or girl who raises our hand up, who's, who can't sit in the chair anymore, who jumps up and says, send me, send me, send me. I have no idea what I'm doing. I don't know where I'm going to go, but I'm so excited. I'll do whatever you tell me to because I've been healed. I've been forgiven. I want more. Yes, 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 yes. The excitement in his heart and in his life 
We read this as if it's some old man who had a vision, who's this regal person who's been, been forgiven and he's got sackcloth on, he's beaten himself, and, and now he just goes and serves. Guys, we're writing to the children. We're spiritual children who should be excited because we've experienced the forgiveness of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and we now walk into His presence and now see and hear and feel the holiness of God as it's being generated and spoken, the truth being proclaimed by these seraphim. Have you ever had that joy? That excitement? Has it been a while? We're all little kids. We're all little kids. Don't get this idea that because I'm an adult, uh, you know, well, Solomon said, I was once a child, I thought as a child, and I became a man, I put away childish things. He's, he, he's not talking about a childlike relationship with God. Because God views us as that little child. God, truth is, He sings over us as we sleep. He speaks into our ears. He whispers, I love you to every single one of us. And he sees us as a little child. There are times to stand as a mature follower and lead the charge, be the point of the spear for the cause of Christ. And there's also a time to be the six-year-old in the throne room with all of our brothers and sisters of our daddy king. And the freedom of the weight of sin and degradation can be removed just like that. From a searing hot stain. For us, that pain was paid here. And that blood covers it if we simply admit I'm broken, I'm sinful, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. The holiness of God. Guys, this is foundational. This is foundational for us as individuals. This is foundational for us as a church. This is foundational for us as Christ followers. Universally, universal truth, the foundation of the holiness of God. God is a good, good Father. And He loves us so, so much. How does this, how does this hit us? What do we do with this? What's the next step? I think the next step is to truly to, to look in the mirror, look in the spiritual mirror and see what we look like. Where are we in tune? Where are we not in tune? What do we need to ask forgiveness of and how do we walk in holiness and purity and it's a heartbeat. This is the day the Lord has made. I will choose to rejoice and be glad in it every single day. It's our choice. Do you want to walk in holiness? Do you want to be obedient? Do you want to be holy as Jehovah your Elohim is holy? And does your heart cry in unison with the seraphim? the angelic host with the saints in the throne room crying out, holy, holy, holy 
is the Lord God Almighty. The whole of the earth is full of your glory. Let's pray. God, we ask for more of you in the name of Jesus. Father, you gave us imaginations. May we use our imaginations to point us to you, to see you high and lifted up, exalted with your throne room, exalted with the train of your throne filling that, the train of your robe filling that room. May we hear the holiness of you being echoed throughout the halls and the truth shaking the foundation itself. And Father, if there's sin within us, we ask you to, Holy Spirit of God, reveal that to us so that we can confess it and move away from it. And remind us that past mistakes, past condemnation, past regrets, those are not of you. That's of the evil one. The evil one comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He wants to steal, kill, and destroy us in this moment. And he wants to take our past to affect our future. And that's not of you. Because when we confess our sins at the foot of the cross and we ask forgiveness, we are forgiven and we stand as little children before the throne of our daddy king as six-year-olds crying out, Send me! Send me. Send me. God, that, that takes a lot of guts. I don't know if I'm brave enough to pray that prayer. Would you help me be brave enough? Father, I don't know if I'm bold enough to say that prayer. Would you help me to be bold enough? know if, Father, I really believe that prayer. Would you help me to believe it and activate through it? In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about Sword Point Church at